The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Boy, do I hope you like this podcast episode. You know, it's funny because as someone who loves story, sometimes I have to remind myself that you have to pull the pieces, the characters, the storylines, the plot lines together. And if you can do that, maybe, just maybe you can lay something out that, that means something to someone, impacts somebody, um, changes direction in a very positive manner. And that's what we're going to try to do today. You know, I, look, if I piece it together, I have conversations with people, what feels like every day about sustainability, about Gen Z about the next generation and what they're doing in education. And do we have the career paths established? Do we know what we're doing with AI? How will that change or, or shift thinking from the next generation and what they're looking to do and how they want to live their lives? And so this is a culmination of those conversations. I'm spending time with Ken Janssens. He is the co-founder of this relatively new company, Window. He's the former chief data officer at JP Morgan. You know what Window does? window and we'll get into this in the podcast they basically pull together all the esg the deni reports of corporations around the world so that young people so anybody but primarily the next generation can go in and see where these folks score what are they doing to make a difference let me just throw some stats out that came out in the interview i, I could not believe this when we think about gen z and what they're looking for in their careers window did some research 23 percent of gen z you know what they do? They go to Wikipedia before they interview. They check out to see if there are controversies related to the company that they're interviewing at. Just let that sit in for a second. Not about the product or how well they're doing. They want to know, like, in essence, what's the story? What's the full story? Are they being transparent? 72% of Gen Z say that, that it's important to work at organizations whose values are aligned with theirs. Again, we're not talking about the product or solution that they're offering the marketplace or the industry. It's about values. And I'll close with this one. 93% of graduates want to make a difference in their job, favoring companies with sustainable policies. That should reverberate through the airwaves because that impacts the story that the C-suite that CEOs are telling prospects, their market, their consumers, their customers. So I hope you really enjoy this. We take a lot of sort of dips and turns into the conversation. Uh, Ken is incredibly transparent. Uh, he brings an, oh, just a wonderful wealth uh, of knowledge, and he's a likable guy. Enjoy. For those of the of you that have listened to my podcast um, over the years, you know, you, you see sort of this evolution of story and the elements that, you know, look, selfishly, I'm doing this, so I, I want to tell the stories and talk to the people that fascinate me. Um, and sometimes I just get really, really lucky. And I opened up an email, I think it was maybe in the last two weeks, from, an, from a company that, I, there was something about it, and I said, I, I need to dig in here. 
And granted, I, I guess lecture with graduate students, and I've been doing that for almost two decades, and I'm having offline conversations with young people with Gen Z about what they're looking for in a career path, what they're nervous about, what they're fearful about when we think about traditional uh, careers that maybe, you know, derive from their family members, uh, the communities that they're in, you know, a legacy, uh, because those legacies are being challenged now by all sorts of things, not to mention AI. Uh, and so today we're going to be talking to Ken Janssens. He is co-founder of Window, and he's also the former chief data officer at JP Morgan. Now, for those of you who are listening saying, okay, so this is just a corporate conversation. Uh, well, one, you, you don't know me and you don't know uh, this podcast because this is really, really an important conversation. I'm going to give a little bit more background on, on Ken, and then I'm going to let him do justice on Window and what they're doing and how, how powerful I feel like I've just stumbled into a gold mine in what Window does. Um, but like I said, he was at J.P. Morgan Chase for almost 25 years. I don't mean to date you there, Ken. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you were, he was a trailblazer. Uh, he founded the J.P. Morgan Chase's LGBTQ plus executive council. Uh, he's lived and worked in Tokyo, Sao Paulo, London, and New York, uh, and is a former board chair at Out and Equal, a leading nonprofit focused on LGBTQ plus workplace inclusion. Um, you really haven't been sitting down, have you, Ken? When I, and what I mean by that is you approach life standing up um, and with forward momentum. We were talking off air about all of the data points that are out there. How are we going to assess uh, and impact Gen Z's decisions? Uh, and, and I would contend really their level of, of satisfaction and sort of life writ large because work is 24-7. You don't turn it off anymore. It doesn't really, it's not an American thing at all. I think it's just sort of a global marketplace or a condition of the global marketplace. That's a long way of saying it's great to spend some time with you. And, you know, a lot of times interviews, I feel like I have a path I want to go down. We've got about seven that, <laughs> that I'd love to go down. Um, we're going to dive into DE&I. We're going to talk about ESG. Can you give the the 10,000 foot on Window and the data points and in essence, why you co-founded Window now? Right. Well, first of all, Rod, really pleased to be here with you and your audience. Um, so when I, um, maybe if I just go back a little bit um, and I'll start at the at the pandemic. Um, and like so many during the pandemic, pandemic, I really reflected on kind of what mattered to me. And at that point, I was think 24 years, uh, JP Morgan career was going extremely well. Um, but I started to think, and, um, I came to the realization as we kind of returned to work that it was time, uh, for a change. So my husband and I, we, we both quit our jobs. Um, we bought an RV, um, sorry to be predictable. <laughs> and uh, we went traveling around Europe uh, with our two dogs for, for 11 months. Um, and, you know, coming out of such an intense 25-year career, and you're right, I do find it quite difficult to sit still. Um, so I started doing some research uh, in the back of my RV on, on, on my laptop. Um, and considering all of the DI work that I had done at JP Morgan, uh, I started looking at JP Morgan's ESG report, and I was particularly interested in how DEI showed up in that report. And then I started looking at a few other banks. Um, and then before I knew it, I built a spreadsheet with DEI data for all Fortune 100 companies. Um, and I also started to read a lot more about ESG and kind of trying to become more knowledgeable. 
And one of the things that I learned was that this data is obviously important for investors, but they're not the only people that care about this data. Young people in particular care about it. Uh, with half of Gen Z looking at a company's sustainability report when they're researching a potential employer. Um, but my co-founder, Ollie and I, we were really surprised not to find a single platform where that data was easily accessible for young talent. So, so that's really how uh, Window was born. How do we, uh, so I want to dive into the data because, and can you talk about the mechanics? So in essence, you can go on there and really pull the data, right? So it's, it's, I mean, look, in America, we have these, and maybe I'm way off the ranch here, but, you know, we have ways where we can compare insurance companies, right? Where they're basically stacked, to, you know, next to one another in this chart. And you can say, well, this is the one that I want because it it's, fits my specific needs. I mean, we're sort of talking about that just from a pair, like that's the frame, right? Is that I can go in. Yeah and explore where these companies land in these different areas, these different uh, metrics that are important to me. Correct. I mean, think of think of Window as the glass door for sustainability or the trust pilot for okay. sustainability. So we build these profiles um, and we define sustainability with three verticals, environment, DEI, and well-being. Um, and yeah, we, we basically pull mostly from um, companies' own reports, but those reports are notoriously difficult to digest. The average sustainability report for a FTSE 100 company is 113 pages. So if you, we, we calculate that that takes, you know, the average reader about three hours to read cover to cover. Who has Nobody's time? Nobody's going to do that. And it's all in different formats. So so that's what we've done. We've we've standardized it. We've made it bit sized so that it's easily consumable. It's a, it's actually a mobile first app. So we actually think the mobile experience is the best one because you just go through single tiles, um, and you can basically in fifteen to twenty minutes get a really good sense if the company is really committed to planet and people. Um, and you know we also pull in some other sources other than the company's reports. Um, so we pull in public statements that they've made, maybe in favor of racial justice, LGBTQ rights, women's rights. Uh, we also pull in external recognition from very reputable um, kind of awards that they've received as an inclusive employer so that when you look at that profile, it becomes very complete and there's that external validation and that external commitment that companies have made is is very visible. Talk about the response that you've gotten on two sides. One from the the company side, right? The data side. Uh, if you've gotten responses, I'd be curious. I would imagine this could impact at some level the data that they explore and then report on because now they're, I'm not going to say they're being held to account, but maybe they're also being, you know, um, highlighted because they're doing some great work. Uh, and then also the response from the the end user that is scrolling through the app. Do we have a, a way we can glean into what the impact might be? Yeah. So um, and just to we're, we're literally just launching, um, but in the pre-launch, uh, just to, on the end user side, we've so far without any uh, advertising spend, we have twenty two thousand, um, you know, kind of organic users that we've attracted. So. Um, so quite a bit of interest. 
And then, yes, we, we are talking to a lot of companies and, you know, we're getting really good uh, feedback. People really um, love it. We've been at careers fairs, big ones. Uh, we were at the Out and Equal uh, Workplace Summit, which has 4,000 people. And interestingly, we had some people that were working at a company already and said, oh, yeah, can you pull up my company? And then we showed them their data. And I was like, I had no idea. So they work for the company and they, and they had no idea. Because probably they themselves don't want to read the 113-page sustainability report. But it's so so. Yeah, we've had really really good um, feedback, and I would say yes. I think there is also an element that, and we really want to help companies with that to tell their sustainability story. Because you know, when it comes to the environment, there's a lot of standards that are published that tell companies, okay, you should report on this, this, and this. But when it comes to DEI, which is really the S in the ESG, um, the the sort of guidance is very lacking. Um, you're lucky if the guidance goes much beyond gender and race, you know, very little on disability, LGBTQ, veterans, socioeconomic background. But these are all really important dimensions of diversity. So, and what we've been able to do at Window by looking at those companies that are saying, forget those standards which are lacking, we're going to get our story out there. We can kind of highlight those companies that are really doing well. And then their competitors can go, ah, they're reporting on that. We should maybe consider that as well. And that's the kind of change definitely that we want to to bring about. Let's have you put on your corporate hat. So in essence, go back in time prior to window. Look, data, and and love for you to challenge me on this. Um, you're comfortable with data, right? And I think that data is mm-hmm. the kind of thing that if you go into a hardware store, you're either comfortable or you're not because you grew up and and it didn't it didn't scare you to go in and and look for all kinds of tools and these sorts of things. I think data is a lot like that. If we, if we get an early experience with it, we get comfortable. Now we're going to utilize it and we're going to understand how to apply it. I'm wondering, just your perspective from the corporate space, you know, we are pulling in data. Some of it is is maybe less than what we would like, but it's going to hopefully grow over time with, you know, innovations like Window uh, and solutions like Window. But how do we feel? What's our confidence level regarding the corporations and the way in which they can distill down the data they're collecting and then how that may or may not impact the talent um, strategies that they have moving forward because the stats are, you know, they're exploding about Gen Z, right? If there's ever a generation, they're the first generation that is putting purpose over profits, which is, I think for our generation is, it really is tough to wrap our heads around, right? We care. I think a lot of us do care, but we were raised to understand a ladder, right? There's an image of Mm -hmm. climbing a ladder. There's an image of that. You, there are steps that you take and they're saying, don't care about those steps, Right, we're we're gonna we're mm-hmm. gonna take an entirely different route, and now it feels like corporations have to not just have, you know, uh, a sustainable sort of product in the market over time that supports a workforce, but they kind of have to sell the environment, their environment, <laughs> their culture, mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think they did in the past. Right, the power differential was incredibly different. So, where's your confidence level with regards to corporations being able to distill down the the data? And understand it. Because I think there's a big difference between, in essence, reporting and understanding. Yeah. And 
I mean, one thing I would say is well, before I answer that question is we try and strike a balance between the quantitative and the qualitative in Windows. So if you if you look at a company's profile, you will you will hopefully see that come through. Um, yes, we we share the, for instance, gender um, workforce data over time. Uh, do they set any targets? Um, what about their gender pay gap data? But what we also pull in um, are kind of more the softer things, like do they have a vlog on the lived experience of an LGBTQ person at their company? Um, do they have a vlog on what it's like to be a disabled person? So, so we, you know, we try and strike that balance because we know that it, you know Gen Z will look at both. Um, and what's interesting is we know that a lot of companies are maybe afraid to put out their data because Gen Z are not going to like it. But we, you know, we have a network of 400 uh, university society leaders in the UK. So we, we really feel like we, we kind of, we're plugged into what they're thinking. And interestingly, they're not looking for perfection. They're looking for transparency and commitment. And are the companies making progress? So, you know, I think it's okay for companies to share, even if what where they are now is maybe not where they'd like to be. But if they can show year over year progress and they're just chipping away at and and you know moving the dial on DEI is extremely difficult. That I've one thing I've learned working at JP Morgan for 25 years. But I think if you know, I know that when Gen Z can see, okay, you're making progress, you're they that that's what they want to see. They're not looking for the perfect environment they're looking for an environment where there's commitment and there's progress so anytime people pull together data uh i think those that are uh, in data and just in just business sort of in general as we think about you know data can be very valuable because you can apply it to other uh you know sort of methodologies approaches uh quite big questions that are hanging out there i would think that in a world where now window exists and in a world where we have social impact investing, right, where you have young people wanting to know, am I going to invest in a company that has a board that is representative of the world that I live in? Um, you know, if I'm in retail, I'm wondering how the data that you have might impact, right? So if I'm a young, if I'm an early career professional and I'm picking a corporation and they sort of match my lifestyle and, and what I'm looking for in purpose, I would then maybe extrapolate that that could impact everything from how I, you know, sort of fill my my flat or my apartment with furniture. Where do I buy it? Is it a company that's sustainable? Do, are we, do you think we're going to get to a place where we can sort of step back and analyze that data and see some, I'm not going to say causality, but that there, there's something going on. There's an ecosystem that we didn't realize that was out there. And it is building and it's rich uh, with nutrients. And we need to harvest that and understand that better. Yeah, so um, I actually recently um, wrote a research report um, for an organization called Open for Business. It was actually a report that was published at Davos uh, a few weeks ago. And what I did there, it's, the report is called the LGBTQ, um, it's sorry, the Investor Guide to LGBT Inclusion. And what I did in that report is I specifically looked at the data points uh 13 data points um, in sustainability reports. And I analyzed 300 um, 
of the largest listed companies in the US, UK, Germany, and Australia. And what I was able to prove um, is that the top 25 that were the most transparent about LGBTQ uh, DEI were 2.3 times more profitable than the bottom 25. Um, 2.3. 2.3. And I, I looked at the pro- I looked at profit as a percentage of revenue. And that is a, um, a measure you need to be careful with because that differs by industry. But I backtested it at the industry level and the, it held up. Um, and the other interesting thing that I found was that the diversity outcomes were also better for the more transparent companies. They had larger LGBTQ workforces than those that were less transparent. Uh, and then finally, they were more admired as companies. And what I used there was a proxy of the Fortune's world's most admired companies and many more um, that had a high LGBTQ transparency score featured in that list than in the bottom 25. So, and, you know, we have to be careful here. This is correlation, not causation. Yeah, um, an important point. But, but you know, it was really fascinating um, to to see. And if that's true for LGBTQ, I'm I'm nearly certain it's it's true for all diverse groups. Isn't there a fantastic irony? Um, I would say that we're potentially relatively in the same age bracket and uh, generation. And, you know, we grew up, it was like, if you think about it, sort of broad strokes, companies, you know, if you were Pepsi, you wanted to get Pepsi in the hands of kids as early as you could, because then they would choose Pepsi over Coke. And it was based on the product, right? Sort of that's how you created this affinity to, for a brand. And yet, my goodness, how the narrative has, has flipped and changed. And it's like, okay, yes, the product is there, but is company X, is uh, industry X inclusive in the way in which I want to live my life? And, you know, the product almost becomes secondary to the reason why you may or may not choose a place of employment. I think it's a fantastic story, but I do think there are implications for the young people that are still in yeah. classrooms. They're not on on uh, you know campuses at institutions of higher learning, but they are truly in in secondary school, you know, middle school, high school in the U.S. and these sorts of things. And are we going to be prepared to connect those dots? Uh, you know, the fear in me as a parent is they're going to sort of walk out of the door, uh, sort of come graduation and say, "Okay, it's a barren landscape. I don't." I'm, <laughs> Where do I apply the things that I learned and the way in which I, the filters in which the information came to me to a world where it's incredibly different? So that is a backdrop, uh, Ken. Help me understand the story. You know, Harvard Business Review, it feels like almost every other cover is around the power of story and that the, the mm. companies that are going to make it and that are going to thrive ha- are going to have to understand how to integrate story, right? We're in a hybrid yeah. world. We're in a global economy. Um, you know, you've got, if you, if you, you map culture and strategy together, the only way you're going to do that is by telling a story, a rich story of who you are and these sorts of elements. How do we support companies and corporations and industries to tell a more transparent to your point, uh, narrative that is inclusive, not only of those that are there now, but those that are sort of waiting in the wings that they hope will be a part of their talent pipeline. Yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased that you've, um, You've raised um, the topic of, of storytelling, the importance. I know 
that's a big part of your podcast. Um, you know, I, I think it, you know, storytelling is probably the most effective way to change hearts and minds. Um, and I've, you know, particularly at JP Morgan in the last decade, um, you know, you could try and appeal to people, say, for instance, on, you know, racial justice or on LGBTQ. And, you know, you will get some success, but there's nothing more powerful than having someone tell their sort of lived experience. You know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, you know, this was happening across companies all around the world where, you know, for the first time for many employees, they got to hear some very raw stories from black colleagues. And it was, it, it created a change. People were like, I had no idea. And I've seen that through all of the work that I did without Nequal, which focuses very heavily on that storytelling. Um, you know, we can, and this is what unfortunately the right is trying to do in the US. They're trying to, for instance, dehuma, dehumanize trans people. Um, but it's very difficult to dehumanize when you can actually listen to a trans person and what's what's their journey been like how you know what have they had to go through you know most people have empathy and when they can see um what life has been like then you know usually there's something that clicks and you know they're you know people will be more open more receptive more supportive and i think you know I know JP Morgan does a lot of this. In fact, if you go to the window profile uh, of JP Morgan, like for every diverse group, you will find a vlog that talks about that. So, um, you know, and that's definitely something that at window, we, we encourage companies to do is like, yeah, give us the, you know, publish the hard data, but, you know, share real people that work in your company and have them talk. Um, it's so powerful. I'm so glad you brought the, Look, these are some difficult conversations, and I'm 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 curious as to your per perspective. And I don't it doesn't matter to me if it's a professional or personal hat or just someone who has been in the industry and really had your eye on uh, on sort of the heartbeat, right? That goes beyond the ones and zeros. You know, I'm glad you brought up sort of how these different, um, I mean, these movements, ESG, DE, and I. And belonging, and, and that's an important piece. I know that's important, to, that element that you add, the belonging element to DE&I. You know, I'm wondering how do we parse out within the data, and maybe we can't, right? And maybe this is country or region or even local, locally specific, um, the, rhetoric, the rhetoric, right? And sort of this, and the word that came to my mind was almost weaponization, right? That, you know, you mm. can't, I mean, I remember getting phone calls, Ken, about, ESG and corporations that I will not name that were very curious about telling stories through podcasts just to illustrate that they were really uh, sort of pro ESG. Like I was getting, yeah. they were, and that some of them were in the financial sector thinking we've got to tell a different story. Maybe we just do some regular podcasting about that shows that we care. And now I'm having people say to me offline, oh, we can't talk about DEI or we, you know, ESG was, you know, that was sort of then. Um, mm. it's not now I've even had people that I've been shocked at that say to me, well, what's ESG? And I'm mm. thinking, 
okay, so how do we, it's like AI. I'll give you an example with AI. I've interviewed a lot of people in the AI space. And sometimes people, I'll hear in the news, people say, well, you know, the fad of AI. Well, when you talk to experts, there's nothing fad about AI. <laughs> Our world is, is forever changed because of AI. And we don't have to talk about that and sort of judge the, the, the benefits or, or, or the perils associated with maybe a, an AI world. But why is it that people are thinking that ESG or DEI, if we just sort of wait it out, we kick the can mm -hmm. down the field, we can get past it. And that says to me more about sort of the cultures that we're coming from than the very sort of intervention or the approach to a more inclusive world that utilizes an ESG or DEI and belonging um, does. Just your perspective on that. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. But let me first start by saying I'm kind of happy that ESG has become a dirty word. And that really? it's being dropped as a yeah. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I just think it. I think it's an unhelpful uh, construct because yes, environment, social governance. Um, I can see why they created it, but that that immediately creates silos. And the the truth is, there's there's interdependence between them. And by by the very you're just sort of separating them in the outset. And I think that's unhelpful. So I think sustainable is a much better word because one it's it's not an acronym everyone can get get behind and understand okay something is sustainable or it's not um so will sustainable being will this will our business be here in 10 years or 15 years or what we're doing is it sustainable and then it becomes a very simple kind of question and you can talk about oh should we do something about environmental impact because yeah maybe if we keep going then we might not be around here anymore or should we have a company that represents the communities that we serve? Or maybe there'll be a backlash and we won't be around here anymore. So I, I, I'm I, sort of, you know, um, happy that ESG is going away. And I think there's a really simple way of for companies to sort of deal with all of this rhetoric um, and just call it their impact report. How are they impacting the world? You know, like, don't call it ESG because, yes, they'll, they'll attack you. Um, but talk about impact. And then because, and this is what people love to say, which is, you know, focus on shareholders. You know, ESG is moving away from that. Well, no, actually not. Because if you're not sustainable in the long term, your shareholders are not going to be happy with you. Um, so, you know, so I think that's sort of one thing to it. And I would also say there will there are many companies that are going to stay the course on DEI and ESG, and quite frankly, it's a it's a golden opportunity for them to get even further ahead from their competitors. So, you know, there were those that were kind of maybe just starting on their DEI journey or ESG journey, and now they're sort of pulling back. But there are companies that have been at this for more than a decade, and they're they're going to keep going. And it's going to create more of a of of a competitive advantage. So my my advice to companies, this is actually an opportunity. And it, it I don't want it to be, but I think that's what it will be. Um and one final statistic that I will share, which I think is fascinating. And again, it was in that recent Davos report I wrote. Um, when I looked at those 300 companies, I analyzed their materiality assessments. And for 
you know, materiality assessment is basically the starting point of a, a sustainability strategy is where you kind of map out what are the key material issues that matter to us as a company and to our stakeholders. And then you kind of map them. And then if they're sort of in the top right-hand quadrant, they're important to the company and important to stakeholders. And that's what a company then focuses on. Uh, and then, you know, the sustainability strategy follows from that. 92% of companies place DEI in that top right-hand uh, quadrant. That means that 92% of these companies consider DEI to be something if they don't tackle seriously, they won't be around in the long term. So, I mean, sit with that for just 30 seconds. That means that, like, how could a company now suddenly go, well, we're going to throw DEI out of, out of that matrix because it's become a hot, but no, they've, it's already baked into that. This is really important to us. So I find it really difficult to imagine a massive reversal. I think this, we will see change on the margin. And unfortunately, this rhetoric is from a very loud minority that I'm, gets too much airtime. Too much airtime. Uh, so well said. I, when we talk about story, one of the things I sometimes think that we forget, which is sort of ironic here, is we forget the storyteller. And given what you just talked about, 92%, and actually that gives me hope. That's like the statistic of the day, Ken. I really appreciate that because, you know, if I was just doing a sort of a straw poll, that would not be what I would have thought. Um, so that is very encouraging. But I'm wondering if, you know, we think about this in all kinds of, I think, roles. We think about it in athletics. We think about it um, in entertainment, but personality types. And I don't mean to sort of push this into a box, but I'm wondering if when we think about sort of the CEOs of the future or the C-suite of the future is a mm -hmm. skill that we're going to have to check a box on when, we're, when we are searching for that next, they're going to have to be a relatively good and engaging storyteller. Because, you know, in, if you think about sort of traditional leadership development, and we looked at the different types of CEOs and leaders, and it was, you know, you could be, in essence, the data individual, right? You could be sort of that operational CEO. But I don't know from what I'm hearing if that's going to be, you know, if I'm on a board somewhere, I may want my CEO, my chief executive, to have some ability to communicate emotionally. Yeah. Right? With yeah, noise and purpose and direction and precision. And that, to me, is a very talented storyteller. And so I'm just wondering if we, you know, sort of thinking broadly, if we look down the runway, do you, you know, am I, am I way off on this or do you think that no. there's some merit? No, I think there's a lot, lot of merit. And by the way, I think this has sort of been in the making for some time. Um, you know, I've, I used to manage very large teams at JP Morgan and I used to joke with, with my team, you don't have to be a jerk to be successful. And it's something that I've lived by for, for a very long time. Um, so, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Storytelling will be really important. Winning hearts and minds is going to be, um, really key and, you know, being authentic, 
um, not trying to kind of be that cookie cutter image of kind of a corporate leader, you know, bring your whole self to work, um, you know, and be vulnerable as well. I think it's such a, such an important, um, quality, um, you know, something that we, we focus on, it's, it's one of our sort of more edgy features in window we have, and we don't have it for many companies and I will explain why we have a tile called mistakes. Um, and so we have it for a couple, if you want to, you know, Disney is a good example. Um, because we know that Gen Z really care about that. They, um, you know, just to give you a statistic, we, we ran a survey, um, amongst university society presidents and 23% go to Wikipedia to look at controversies of a company before they apply. They do their homework. They're actively looking for this. So our pointed window is if you know that that's what they're doing, why not get ahead of this and actually communicate about that yourself? Because otherwise you're letting some platform like Wikipedia set the tone and tell the story and control the narrative and control the narrative. So companies, you know, no company is perfect. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize, uh, and it's part of what you were talking about. What is that? What are those qualities? You know, not the quality is not we're perfect. We never make mistakes. Yeah, we do. And we got it wrong and we're going to do better. And the Disney example is a really great one. It's a very famous one. Um, you know, don't, don't say gay. Um, the previous CEO really, you know, didn't handle that very well. Um, but then Disney kind of dug deep and said, we got this wrong. We are going to do better. Um, luckily they had a very long history of being very LGBT inclusive. So I think that helped them sort of weather the storm, but they have a statement on their website where they kind of explained that and said, we, we got this wrong and here's what we're going to do better going forward. And we linked to that from window. And we think that's, that's a really important, um, kind of thing for companies to do. So we, you know, companies apologizing isn't necessarily something that you will find, you know, we've spent a lot of time searching for it, but, um, we do, you know, I would say, you know, we track 500 companies right now in window. And I think at this point we have about two dozen where that mistakes um, tile is populated. And we'll just keep adding to it because one, we think that makes window more valuable to Gen Z, but also we just, we think as part of, you know, how a company should position itself, it's, it's an important thing to get right. Let's, um, as we put a bow, a bow on, on this conversation, I want to kind of go back to what I said at the outset, which was that my sense of you is that you, you don't live life sitting down, right? You're about putting yourself out there, um, to not just experience life for yourself in a more enriching way, but to help others. Um, and I'm just wondering at this point in your career, right. To make the decision that you made that both you and your husband made to, to quit your jobs and to really give back, but to partake in the next chapter, I think evolution of who we are and how we understand um, the inner workings of, of, uh, of work and home um, and, and culture and environment. And I'm just wondering, you know, there are people out there that 
I've talked to that, let's say that they grew up during World War II and they've said to me things like, you know, I just feel like I got dropped into the world at sort of the wrong section of the book. You know, they just, it felt like, gosh, if I had just been able to skip ahead a few, few decades, maybe I would have had a different life. Um, and I'm wondering when you think about your purpose and you think about um, meaning, I get the mm. sense that you were dropped into sort of the exact section of the book to realize your full potential because you really had a training course at JP Morgan for a quarter of a century. And you've applied that now to not just making a difference for you and your family, but for my goodness, um, you, you could say, I'll say it, uh, for, for people across the world in really meaningful ways. And I just wonder how that lands for you when you think about the decision that you made, um, and you reflect on the contributions that you have, um, that you've, that you've given to so many people in so many different disciplines and areas of their life? Yeah. Well, I think the key thing is I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for my time with JP Morgan. Um, I was um, the first person in my family ever to go to university. Um, you know, and so me joining JP Morgan you know, at the age of 22, it was, you know, it was a real moment, um, but it didn't stop there. And and by the way, I'll just share this because it's funny um, I, because I am from a different generation. All I needed was to see a glossy brochure with glitzy Wall Street skyscrapers. <laughs> and I was like, where you do I in. sign off? <laughs> I was in. I wasn't looking for a sustainability report. But but at the same time, JP Morgan had such a profound impact on me. Um, you know, I was I was sent on these um expert assignments to New York, to Tokyo, Sao Paulo. So they really shaped my my identity and my worldview. And you know, the culture of JP Morgan is so strong. It, you know, like it really had a had a profound impact on me. Um, but also um, you know, I was allowed to to bring myself to work. I was able to come out at work back in 2000. Um, so, and the, the culture, and that was in London. And so the culture was that strong that when I arrived in Tokyo in 2002 and in Sao Paulo in 2008, I knew I had the company's back that I could continue to bring my whole self. It didn't matter where that was, that extended everywhere. And so, when I arrived in Sao Paulo in 2008, I, I quickly realized I was the only openly gay employee in an office of 1,000 employees. So I knew that was statistically impossible. So, um, and, but also I, I was, you know, relatively senior at that point. And I also felt it was time to give back to the company that allowed me to to be me for that long and thrive as a result. So I launched a, an LGBTQ employee resource group with one member uh, back then in at, at the bank in Brazil. Um, and now that is a thriving group. I mean, more than half of the, of the office is a member of that group, allies and LGBTQ people. Um, and that was really the beginning for me um, as an, you know, my journey as an activist leader. Um, and, uh, you know, I, my, my sort of 
I often joke my 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 gay job um, became bigger than my day job. Um, and so I did so many things. And you mentioned some at the start, um, launching the LGBT Executive Council at JP Morgan, which at the time had 12 members of the most senior LGBT executives. And when I left JP Morgan, you know, there were 400 LGBT uh, managing directors and executive directors. So I felt like, okay, my work is done here. I can, I can move on. Um, but to sort of answer your, your question, I also realized at some point, and like many corporate leaders, that there was a point in my career where I actually realized it was no longer about what I produced. Um, it w- it was about lifting and enabling the people around me that was going to lead to a much greater impact. And I know many others kind of reached that point when they, that sort of penny drops. And so I really wish I had a tool like window 25 years ago at my fingertips uh, when I was researching who I wanted to work for. Um, and I also, I really enjoyed working with young talent at JP Morgan. I mentored many over the years. So the fact that I now get to work with young talent every single day, and I can combine it with my passion for data and DEI, this is exactly what I want to be doing in this next phase of my professional career. Really enjoyed that conversation. Ken taught me a lot. I mean, I took notes in this conversation, this interview, like I haven't taken in quite some time. Uh, I feel like I couldn't write fast enough uh, based on the things that he was inspiring me to think about, statistics that were reflective of what Window does. Um, we probably could have had, this probably could have been a three-part uh, podcast, uh, but it wasn't. So for those that are interested to learn more, I really encourage you to check out Window. It's csrwindow.com. That's csrwindow, spelled W-I-N-D-O, uh, .com. And the statistics are incredible. I mentioned it at the outset. You know, one thing that really stuck with me with Ken when he talked about sort of this, you know, the nomenclature. Of, of sustainability, of sort of what are we doing to make a difference? And I just love that he said, why don't we just call it an impact report? How subtle, right? Sometimes, like we've always been told, sometimes it's the simplest answer that gets us to where we want to go. It helps us cross the finish line, meet new people, experience new adventures. But an impact report, because an impact report allows me as a CEO, a storytelling CEO, to actually think about the way in which we're laying out the information that reflects the spirit, the mission, the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. I just love that. There were so many just wonderful nuggets in here and, and learning about sort of this cross, you know, continent <laughs> uh, RV trip that Ken and his husband took. Um, th- that alone, we probably could have had a, a podcast on and just the sights and sounds and what they saw. Um, but wonderful experiences. Um, and, and just one last note here because I think this goes for all of us, is that Gen Z is looking for something that I hope the rest of the planet is, which is transparency and commitment. In a very chaotic world, I hope that that resonates with all of you as it does for me. Let's be more transparent. Let's let people know that we're committed to them. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. Headroom.